TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. King OX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, Nothing Impossible on King OX. It's the venue for conversation about St. Louis entrepreneurialism and innovation. Welcome in. Michael Calhoun with you. Travis Sheridan, my usual co-host, is away. He sent me a selfie from alongside a body of water, which with the weather we've had lately... Looks and sounds pretty nice these days, but we'll have him back with us for the conversation next week. Here's what we're going to talk about on the show on this Sunday. So we've got the Missouri Foundation for Health and Global STL joining us to talk about access to health care. Yes, Medicaid expansion is on the ballot, and yes, they wanted to talk about that as part of the conversation, but also about the access that people in rural areas have. BioSTL is planning a whole symposium, a rural health summit for later this year, so we'll get Get some details on access to health care from Global STL and from the Missouri Foundation for Health. And then we're going to talk with a classic St. Louis success story. It's Galera Therapeutics. They are coming up with a, a treatment for some of the most devastating cancers, head and neck cancers, and what those uh, side effects are. It's, it's just horrible. But what they're doing is making life and treatment a lot better for people. So we'll talk with them both about the important work they're doing and about how how they've been able to do it in St. Louis and why they've stayed in St. Louis. So we've got a lot coming up on the show. It's Nothing Impossible presented by BioSTL. And we'll be right back with more after this. King OX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible. Michael Calhoun, Travis Sheridan is off this week. He's relaxing by the side of a lake from the photo he sent me via text. So I uh, hope he has a relaxing week. He'll join us again on the program next week. But let's talk about healthcare right now. And joining us is Sheldon Weisgraw, the Vice President of Health Policy at the Missouri Foundation for Health, and also Vijay Chowan, who's the Global STL Lead at BioSTL. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. So we, we talk about St. Louis innovation on this program, and the, the Medicaid expansion is uh, one thing that's going to be decided by voters on the August ballot. Vijay, I'll start with you. How does Medicaid expansion connect to St. Louis innovation? Right. So as you know, at BioSTL, we've been focused on building an innovation economy and looking at not only homegrown innovation, but also recruiting innovation from around the world to St. Louis. 
We also look at innovation through the lens of policy and Medicaid expansion in our judgment is a example of a innovative policy and a very smart. Uh, and so Sheldon will be talking why that's the case, but we also see uh, Medicaid expansion fostering an innovative-based economy, which is what we care about, and bridging urban-rural divide, which is another very important initiative for us to build a region-wide, statewide innovation economy. So, Sheldon, why is Medicaid expansion, uh, you know, we've been hearing about it for many years as other states have expanded. Missouri's been one of the few states, I believe just about a dozen haven't. Why is this uh, such a big deal? Why have we heard so much about it? And why is there such a big push for this election? Well, Medicaid expansion, what we're really talking about is expanding eligibility for the program. It is uh, a program now that covers extremely low income people with health insurance. And so to give you a couple of examples, um, if you're a parent in Missouri, you're eligible for Medicaid, but only if you make less than about 20% of the poverty level, which for say a mom and a family of three is about $400 a month. Um, If you are an adult without kids, you're not eligible for the program at all. And um, so what Missouri has some of the lowest eligibility standards in the country. And when we talk about building a strong economy and supporting people in the state, health and healthcare is obviously a basic part of that. And so expanding eligibility for Medicaid up to 138% of the poverty level, which is about $30,000 for that uh, household of three that I mentioned, will provide health insurance to more than 230,000 people in Missouri, which will allow them to work and allow them to show up at work and be healthy and do their jobs. Um, The added benefits to Medicaid expansion beyond just health are that it will bring more than a billion dollars of our federal tax money back home to be spent here in Missouri. Um, So you mentioned that, that Missouri is one of the few states that haven't adopted this policy. We're one of 13 states across the country that have so far held out, which means that our federal tax money is being spent in New York and California and Illinois and Massachusetts and all the states that have taken advantage of this program. And if we can bring that money back and spend it here in Missouri, it will create economic growth, it will create jobs, it will support rural hospitals and rural communities and allow companies like BioSTL to be innovative and allow entrepreneurs to come up from those areas and have the resources and the infrastructure they need to start new businesses and to do innovative things. Is this a situation where, VJ, you expect entrepreneurs to actually be taking advantage of Medicaid expansion and that availability of health care? Or is it a situation where the state budget changes and you get more funding, hopefully, for priorities like workforce development, transportation infrastructure? How, how does this fit in to, uh, to entrepreneurs and attracting those to St. Louis? Yeah, so two, two, two great uh, points about that. You know, so first, we are not just interested in innovation and entrepreneurship that is relevant for highly educated science companies. We need to be thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship for folks in our under-resourced communities. So when you think about a person from those communities, having access to affordable, reliable healthcare uh, 
allows them now to have the freedom to go and take some risks in their careers uh, with their job opportunities and take advantage of economic opportunities which would be difficult if you had uh, the safety net of an insurance not available. We see this as expanding the entrepreneurship economy of our state. Second, and I'm going to have Sheldon actually quantify this, uh, it is really interesting how through Medicaid expansion, the state's budget to be very smart available because it's going to come away from things that we don't need to be doing anymore, become available for investing in economic opportunity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. So Sheldon, you may want to explain how ironically it doesn't increase the state budget has the potential of freeing up some resources. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Vijay. So I'll come at that question from a couple of different angles. I mean, first, if you just look at at the way most people in this country get health insurance, we rely on getting it through our jobs. And we know that small businesses are much less likely to be able to afford insurance uh, for their employees. And so just very directly, Medicaid expansion will provide coverage, not only for the entrepreneurs and the business owners themselves, but for the people that work for them. And we can look at a state like Montana, which adopted Medicaid expansion a few years ago, and now a majority of the small businesses in that state actually have employees that are covered by the Medicaid program who would not have had access to health insurance before that. Um, To get to Vijay's point about the state budget, one thing that Medicaid expansion will do is that it will provide health coverage, as I said, for more than 200,000 people in Missouri. A lot of those people are now getting services and programs through the state that is coming entirely out of the state budget. Medicaid expansion is funded 90% by the federal government, which means that the state will no longer have the need to fund a lot of those services and programs entirely out of the state budget. Instead, those people would be covered by Medicaid expansion, which is funded 90% by the federal government, and that will free up a lot of money at the state level for other priorities and other needs. And again, that is something we've seen across the country and other states that have done this. The foundation a few years ago commissioned a study at Washington University at the Center of Health Economics, and that study estimated that the state would gain about $40 million in just the first year of Medicaid expansion as it's able to offset state general fund spending for federal spending. $40 million, you say, that would be freed up by the influx of these federal funds? That's correct. It would be a net benefit to the state of about $40 million. Because what we've heard over the years from Republicans in the state is that it would be it would be too expensive. Right now, Medicaid takes up about a third of the state budget. Hancock Amendment means you can't raise taxes to uh, either bring in more revenue for that or more revenue for other purposes. And then you have the proponents saying that, uh, well, these federal funds, it would actually wind up being a better proportion for the state. And then uh, Republicans retort saying that, uh, well, the federal funds are only for a certain amount of time and will be on the hook then for more once once those years run out. How do you respond to the fiscal concerns from Republicans in the state? Yeah, so a, a couple of responses. The federal funding at the 90% level is uh, 
for as long as Congress keeps that in place, it would take an act of Congress to overturn that. And when people ask me whether it's likely that that funding will continue, I point out a couple of things. I mean, the first thing is that the Medicaid program has been around for 55 years, since 1965. The federal government has never missed a payment. Uh, And in fact, over that 55 years, federal support has never gone down for the program. It's only gone up. If you look at it in more raw political terms, three quarters of the states in this country have adopted Medicaid expansion, which means that three quarters of the members of Congress represent states that are receiving billions of dollars from the federal government every year. It's very unlikely that those members of Congress are going to come back and vote to stop those payments to their state. So I think one thing we can count on is continued 90% federal funding. How does the state ultimately gain on this? Because the state does have to come up with 10%. But as I said earlier, Directly, the state comes up with 10%, but the federal funds are going to be able to offset a lot of funding that the state is currently paying for out of state general funds. And all you have to do to see the impact of this is to look at the other states that have done this. Um, There's really only one advantage to being late to the game for Medicaid expansion. Most of the other states in the country have had this policy in place since 2014. There has been more research on this topic than anything I've been involved with in my 30-plus year career in health policy, uh, the evidence is overwhelming that this is good for state budgets and good for the economy. When you think about what the impact of bringing in more than a billion dollars of new spending into the state economy would be, that's going to flow throughout communities. It's going to be spent over and over through the multiplier effect, and it's going to create billions of dollars in economic growth and new jobs, all of which is going to add revenue to the state as those jobs and those businesses pay taxes. And so, again, um, I, I understand I understand the fiscal concerns, but but the evidence says that this is good economic policy for the state. As we continue the conversation about equity and improving outcomes for people low income and minorities in the St. Louis area, what is the need for this and what is the impact that this would have on those areas of the St. Louis region? So um, Missouri has a relatively high rate of uninsurance um, compared to the rest of the country. Um, The primary reason is that we have not adopted Medicaid expansion. So we have tens of thousands of people in the St. Louis area who don't have health insurance and don't have access to affordable coverage. Those folks um, have a tougher time getting jobs, going to work, because if you're not healthy, if you have untreated chronic illnesses, it's hard to commit to working a job. And so covering those people provides a basic blanket, a basic security net that they will need to enable them to come up and and to join the workforce. We also know that Uh, A lot of the communities that we're concerned about, whether they be African-American communities, Hispanic communities, have inequities when it comes to health coverage and when it comes to their health. And Medicaid expansion is a policy that has been proven to not eliminate, but narrow those inequities um, and improve the health of those vulnerable populations. Stay tuned. We're talking with Sheldon Weisscraw of the Missouri Foundation for Health and Vijay Chowan of Global STL. We'll get into some challenges that the rural parts of our state face when it comes to health care. Up next on Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL on KMOX. 
KMOX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Moving to the rural areas and, uh, you know, a lot of the hospitals, people have been watching them close in their communities. People are having to drive farther to get to medical care in some rural parts of the country. Uh, And you're planning this rural health symposium, VJ, coming up later this year. Uh, You're the global STL lead for BioSTL. We're also talking with Sheldon Weisgraw, the VP of Health Policy at the Missouri Foundation for Health on Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL. And so talk about uh, what's happening to healthcare in rural areas and what impact this would have on that. Yeah, so, you know, through our work in bringing innovation to St. Louis, urban uh, healthcare organizations, we then started to engage with rural communities. And what you hear time and again is that the issues that are major issues for healthcare are access and affordability is number one. Uh, it is a big challenge for rural communities able to get affordable insurance, uh, healthcare, and that is accessible because the distance between where a person lives and where that care is provided can be very long. And so that is a major area. Another big risk is the capacity, the healthcare capacity whether it is in hospitals or workforce, are continuously challenged. Every year, there's a diminishing amount of hospital capacity and healthcare workforce capacity. And what you're going to hear from Sheldon is how with Medicaid, there is going to be a significant benefit in creating more financial sustainability for the hospital. A new model of healthcare, where care does not have to be just in a hospital, There is a network of care that can be deployed and telehealth and those kinds of technologies can bring care to people where they are versus having people drive long long distances to get to care. Sheldon, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, You know, we are in a full-blown rural hospital crisis, not only in in Missouri, but but throughout the country. Um, More hospitals closed across the nation in 2019 than in any other year. Um, One closed in Missouri. Seven hospitals, rural hospitals, have closed in Missouri since 2015. And when a community loses its hospital, it's not only losing ready access to healthcare, it's losing one of the largest employers in the community. It's losing some of the best paying jobs in the community. It's losing probably the biggest economic engine in in the community. And what we see is that when a rural hospital closes, the community often dies. And so Medicaid expansion will come in and immediately improve uh, the financial stability of of rural hospitals. And again, all we have to do is look at what's going on in the rest of the country. A rural hospital in a state that has expanded Medicaid is six times less likely to close than a rural hospital in a state like Missouri that has not expanded Medicaid. And we are going to need new models and new approaches to healthcare in our rural communities. And a lot of these communities um, are not going to have hospitals uh, in, in, in the near, near and, and future, but Medicaid expansion will infuse revenue, will, will allow the infrastructure that's there to survive and give those communities an opportunity to consider what's next. 
and to go into the next phase of whatever healthcare might look like in those communities from a solid base, which we are now not allowing our rural hospitals to do. I have worked um, throughout my career, much of that time in rural health, and there has never been a policy that will impact rural communities as positively as this in all the years I've worked in rural health. This is just uh, something that if, if people are concerned about the fate of Missouri's rural communities, um, Medicaid expansion is a real direct way to get money into those communities and to support the health infrastructure. And as you get ready for this conversation at the Rural Health Symposium, what are some of the other ancillary challenges? Uh, you mentioned VJ Telehealth, but a lot of areas, I mean, even in some far reaches of St. Louis County, there's issue getting broadband internet. In rural areas, it's even more of an issue. What are some of those uh, barriers to entry for some of these new approaches? Exactly, Michael. So uh, having affordable high-speed broadband is a very important piece of infrastructure for rural communities, not just from a healthcare standpoint, but from running the future economy of these rural communities, whether it's transportation, it's agriculture, it's food, workforce development. So we are working on very innovative solutions where the FCC has uh, brought a lot of funding. The state of Missouri was actually number two in the country in receiving the CAF2 funding uh, across the country and so we are leveraging that along with working with communities that are interested in solving for affordable broadband and deploying that very quickly. Once you have broadband, now you can implement telehealth solutions. As you know, Michael, we've brought solutions where you can bring a uh, cardiac monitoring system into people's home or musculoskeletal disorders. So they want to do physiotherapy in their home remotely monitored through a, a physiotherapist uh, or get access to primary services 24-7. All of those require broadband access. And now with pandemic, kids who are having to get education and not able to perhaps schools, education can be brought into people's homes. So broadband is a key enabler beyond health, and that's a focus of our symposium. So our symposium is really looking at all the barriers to improving health. Medicaid expansion is going to provide a great foundation, but on top of that, we are going to be addressing healthcare access and affordability, workforce, broadband, and then deploying these digital health solutions uh, on that platform of broadband. Let me let me just add to that. I mean, telehealth is a great example of how healthcare is changing. We have been talking about telehealth in rural communities for 25 years. Uh, it took this pandemic to really um, advance in a very short period of time our uh, willingness and ability to provide telehealth services. But health insurance is as fundamental to providing these services as broadband is, because whether the provider is located locally or uh, in an urban area far from the rural community or even in another country, that provider needs to get paid for providing that service. And the way we pay for those services is through health insurance and Medicaid expansion will insure a lot more people in the state of Missouri. So it makes that basic level of access to care possible, regardless of what form that care takes. 
you know, VJ, as you mentioned, these different products and different approaches for telehealth, I'm reminded of the global STL efforts that you're undertaking to try to convince many of those startups from different, you know, from the UK to Israel to uh, South America to try to relocate or open an office in St. Louis. Exactly, Michael. And this is going to be a catalyzing opportunity to bring that to our rural communities. Uh, and so the timing for Medicare expansion could be better. Uh, August 4th is the ballot initiative. Sheldon, do you want to talk about that a second? Sure. So at the foundation, we don't take positions on ballot initiatives. Um, we believe that the evidence clearly supports that Medicaid expansion is a beneficial policy for the state. Um, I would encourage people to just turn out and, and vote their conscience on August the 4th and vote for health. Where can people go to get more information on both of your efforts? So for the foundation, uh, we have been engaged in an educational campaign to try to um, talk about Medicaid expansion and what benefits it would bring to the state. Um, folks can find out more at makessensemo.org. That's M-A-K-E-S-S-E-N-S-E-M-O.org. And on on that website, there are a lot of resources that provide basic information about the program that um, have advertising content that folks can use for social media and videos and um, everything folks should need to educate themselves and their neighbors and their communities on Medicaid expansion is on that website. So on the BioSTL website, you'll be able to see a center on rural health innovation and the Rural Health Symposium biostl.org. All right. Vijay Chowan, Global STL Lead, and Sheldon Weisgraw, the VP of Policy at the Missouri Foundation for Health. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you, Michael. We'll be back with more Nothing Impossible presented by BioSTL after the King MOX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Let's spotlight one of the firms that's doing a lot of really important research and development in the St. Louis area, in the bioscience, the pharmaceutical space. Joining us right now is Robert Beardsley. He's the founder and COO of Galera Therapeutics. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Michael. It's great to be on the show. So first off, a little bit of the history of Galera and St. Louis and a background on what the company is. Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, uh, Galera is a, a true St. Louis born and bred company. Uh, the technology actually originated within uh, the old uh, Monsanto chemical organization uh, many years ago. And our, our chief scientific officer actually developed the class of molecules uh, that we're working in uh, now there, uh, about a thousand uh, about a thousand feet from where our labs are right now. So we're co-headquartered in Malvern, Pennsylvania, uh, where our corporate and clinical development headquarters are, and here in St. Louis, where we have our research labs and, and the non-clinical components. So it's, it's really a, a great St. Louis story. And we're hoping that in the next couple of years, we're going to make the town proud. So tell us a little bit about the research itself, what you're looking into, what you're hoping to solve. Yeah, so our mission, our aspiration, is to transform cancer radiotherapy. And that's the use of radiation to treat cancer. And um, probably, unfortunately, many of the uh, listeners will have either 
will either be cancer survivors themselves or will have family members or friends who've uh, had cancer and gone through radiotherapy. And there's really two things that, that need to be improved with uh, radiotherapy and cancer. One is reducing the uh, toxicity, the damage to the normal tissue surrounding the tumor. And the second is improving the efficacy against the tumor of the radiation. Now radiation, radiotherapy is a great treatment for a number of cancers, head and neck cancer being uh, front and center uh, in our plans. Uh, we're going after in phase three now, reducing the toxicity of standard radiotherapy in head and neck cancer. Uh, because for a patient that, that is caught while the disease is still local to the head and neck, it's on the order of a 90% uh, kind of disease control cure rate, if you will, uh, with uh, the radiation. But the side effects can be very significant. Um, in particular, damage to the lining of the mouth, uh, the throat, et cetera, that are known as oral mucositis. And what this means is essentially the radiation, while it's killing the tumor, is also killing the, uh, the lining of the mouth, and it produces very painful ulcers, uh, can make it uh, impossible for uh, many patients to eat solid food, and even a substantial proportion of them to be able to drink, which leads to all kinds of consequences, including the need to put in a feeding tube so that so they can receive nutrition, et cetera, uh, and a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. So we uh, reported last year, or actually two years ago now, I guess it was, uh, on our phase two study in about 223 patients, where we showed versus a placebo, a, uh, a significant decrease in how long that oral mucositis, that severe oral mucositis, last, mucositis lasted, how many patients even got severe oral mucositis. We reduced that by about a third um, and uh, reduced by about half the number of patients who uh, got the worst form, the grade four, as the docs call it, uh, severe oral mucositis, which means they can't even drink. So we cut that in half. These are all significant and uh, changes or significant improvements for the patients and for the radiation oncologist treating them. But the second part of transforming radiotherapy is making the uh, radiotherapy more effective. So it's very effective in head and neck cancer. And, um, you know, it'd be a tall order to try and improve from where that is now. But there are other cancers such as pancreatic cancer, where I think if anyone has watched Steve Jobs, the movie, or, or followed his battle with pancreatic cancer, realizes what a horrible cancer that is. And there's really a need for new uh, therapies uh, in that space. And so we launched uh, about a little over a year ago a, uh, a pilot study using our drug for severe oral mucositis. Avazepazem is, is the, uh, the really really easy to pronounce name, avazepazem manganese. Everyone say that three times fast <laughs> um, <laughs> this evening. Um, using it in a pilot study to look at whether we could improve uh, radiation therapy for pancreatic cancer. And this is different than a radiation therapy for head and neck cancer because it is uh, delivered as, few, as a few larger radiation doses. So in our severe oral mucositis phase three, the Roman study, we call it, 
um, we treat, well, the patient receives 35 doses of radiation, each of which is a relatively small amount. The pancreatic cancer patients in our pilot study uh, receive uh, five doses uh, of approximately five to six times more radiation per day. So this is called uh, by the radiation oncologist, uh, stereotactic body radiation therapy. Once again, let's say that three times fast. SBRT is a much easier way to say it. And uh, that's where we see in preclinical tumor models where we see the really big effect, where we can not only protect normal tissue, normal cells, but really increase the anti-cancer efficacy of the radiation. So we announced, uh, I guess it was week before last, uh, that we have completed enrollment in that pilot study. We, uh, we were designed to enroll up to 24 patients uh, in each of two arms. In one arm, the patient received five doses of radiation, and before each dose of radiation, they received a dose of aravazepazin. Uh, in the second arm, they received five doses of radiation and a placebo before each dose. So this is going to be some pretty exciting data that we're going to uh, be uh, unveiling in the second half of the year. We don't know what it is yet, uh, but it's going to be really revealing because it is a randomized study in which you know we're blinded and there's a placebo control. So we'll be able to see at least an early snapshot of whether using our class of drugs can improve the efficacy of radiation therapy. And then from that, we're actually uh, bringing on another, another drug candidate uh, to uh, specifically combine with that SBRT setting. And in fact, in the second half of this year, we've also announced we're going to be starting an, another SBRT study with that second candidate, GC4711, much sexier name than avazepazem, right? Um, in non-small cell lung cancer in combination with SBRT. So this is really becoming a bigger and bigger part of the Galera story as if the severe oral mucositis wasn't already big enough. And Robert, talk about uh, doing this work in St. Louis, where you're located, who's helped you, what organizations have given you a boost here? Oh, yeah. You know, I absolutely have to give a shout out to uh, BioSTL and, and to BioGenerator because um, we're kind of poster children for how this should work. Uh, when we spun all of this out of, uh, out of a prior company, uh, BioGenerator was right there. They were part of our uh, seed uh, investors, a key part of that. We were located first down at, the, uh, at the, uh, the CET. I guess it's the CIC at the CET now, so I'm being old school calling it the CET. Uh, before we moved out here to the Helix Center, where the, the county has been uh, a great supporter of what we've been doing, but we couldn't have done it without Don and, and Eric uh, and, and their support because we raised between them and the uh, the uh, Archangels, uh, as well as our own our own wallets. Uh, we we raised enough to keep advancing the story till we were able in 2012 to close on a Series A with some of the larger venture capital funds. And, and we've added since, and that all enabled us last year, uh, late last year, when everyone thought the IPO market might be closing uh, for sure, and for, for who knew how long to uh, go public. And so, you know, we now 
think we are, we blazed a trail that hopefully uh, others can follow in the St. Louis ecosystem from that seed founding, you know, seed funding by the uh, angels and by biogenerator through growth to become uh, hopefully a, a global uh, biotech company and a publicly traded company. What has kept you around the St. Louis area and continuing to do this research here, even as some of the business operations may be in other places, what is it about St. Louis that's kept the R&D grounded here? There are some really, really great people with really great ideas, some sharp people. So uh, as I mentioned before, our scientific founder, Dennis Riley, uh, is located here in St. Louis, has been for oh, probably 30-some years. Um, but, you know, there's a couple of other companies that I sit on the board of where there is just some fantastic underappreciated uh, drug development going on here. So I think that's it. WashU clearly is a part of that, as have been Pfizer, uh, as have been uh, you know, Monsanto, Bayer, uh, uh, whichever they are this week. Um, you know, and there's always this ecosystem of people with these ideas. So it's the ideas. I think it's also the fact that we are working on such a great support structure here. Uh, one of the things that we've always been short of is sufficient lab space. And uh, now not just in the Cortex district, but also out here, you know, plans are afoot and things are starting to be built in the uh, 39 North district. So we're starting to see the infrastructure. So people, infrastructure, and ideas, uh, you know, now the next thing is to make sure that, that we continue to support the early stage companies and uh, to attract the, uh, the venture backing and, and hopefully people get out and, and get public so that you have the money as well. Cause people, ideas, infrastructure, money, uh, that's really the, the secret behind uh, biotech and life science success. We often talk about uh, with startups who are developing software or apps, that kind of space. But what's different about drug discovery and development, especially from that startup perspective, if an entrepreneur is interested in that, what advice do you have or, or how is it different than the entrepreneur efforts that we may hear a lot about? Time and patience. And what I mean by that is that a normal drug development cycle, even once you have something that's ready to go into the first healthy volunteer study or, or the first patients, to the time that it's approved so that you can get it out to a patients, even those who aren't on a clinical trial testing it. So the FDA approves it and you can actually, patients, the doctors can start saying, I want to put you on this. I'm going to write this prescription or I'm going to order this from the hospital pharmacy and, and treat you with it. Um, you know, my experience is about 10 years. Now think about that as opposed to the latest social media app, which that's probably there's three social media apps in, in some developer's career that have been developed, have been launched and have been acquired by somebody else in that 10 years, you know, three years per, per each app. So I think that's the biggest difference, and that means you have to have the patience to, to stick with it and the commitment because um, in the startup field, the payoff is not in the early days. Um, it's in the later stages, and I think that's true in technology as well. But when that, that payout comes sooner, well, then you can keep body and soul together for that period. But for the life science entrepreneur, it's oftentimes about, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? How is a company going to pay its bills? 
while we're getting there. Well, the commitment that you have to the research, uh, the, just hearing about these devastating side effects from the radiation for people who have uh, especially head and neck cancers. Thank you for that commitment, and thank you for your commitment to uh, St. Louis, and thank you for coming on the show. Well, Michael, thank you for having us, and I just want to say the reason we all have that patience is because of the patients. Um, that's why we get up every morning. Uh, it's why we why we persevere for a decade or more in doing this is because we want to see patients benefit. Robert Beardsley, he's the founder and chief operating officer of Galera Therapeutics. And where can people go to get more information and to follow your progress? Uh, yeah, our website is www.galeratx, that's G-A-L-E-R-A-T-X.com. Thank you, Robert, and thank you for joining us on this conversation about St. Louis innovation. We talked with some entrepreneurs, and we'll be back next week with a lot more. Travis Sheridan will be back from the lake by then as well. Stay well, and we'll talk to you then. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.